Ready? As ready as you're going to be? No, not even that. <laughs> I mean, it is as ready as you're going to be if we record right now. No, it's not. No, it's even lower than it's that. It's even lower than that. What's What's the deal? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just faffing about. I'm going to faff it up. Just faffing? <laughs> what does yeah. that mean, faff? I've never heard that. It's a British term, and it's been stuck in my head because one of my friends that lives in the UK like posted recently and she faffing about and talking about faffing and she said faff and it's and i remember that it's one of my favorites right. i like it because it's fun it's a fun noise to make with my mouth faff faff and also it kind of sounds like a dirty word I was gonna say, it sounds really crude it sounds a lot like british colloquialisms where they all sound kind of like i don't know they they, they sound pretty gross yeah like when you say i'm right chuffed Chuffed is a good one. Yeah. That's like a really good thing. And the like. But it sounds like something gross. (laughs) I'm thinking about like the 10 different variations, 25, 30, 400 different variations uh, of slang terms that the Brits have for vagina and how they all sound awful. Name some. I'm not going to name them on the show. We'll get a TVMA rating. Just say one to me right now. A, that, a PCMA, that a podcast can, MA. That we can skip over. Uh, minge. <laughs> minge is one. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. If you've never watched. Oh my God. We, That's terrible. Ask, ask. Uh, and That's terrible. Ask, ask your, your relatives and loved ones, uh, including me, who have seen The Inbetweeners. <laughs> The, oh my god. The in-betweeners is legendary for the number of like vaginal references they're able to make in different ways. I'm going to ask Dan about it. I bet I bet she's told me about one, it. One one of forgotten. the characters specifically uses minge a lot. The other awful one is clunge. <laughs> prepared for that. Yeah, it's gross. I hate it. But I also love, like, it's what? funny in the context of the show, but it's it's <laughs> awful. Clunge, is it? I, I hate it, but also <laughs> I love it. That's what I'm saying. So. Like, that's what they're all like on that show where it's like, this is disgusting, but also you know, like, like, the best part it's about very it, vivid. Like, it the, has such a, like a... The best part about it is like, that it's like, <laughs> I'm going to be so disgusting. Do it. The best part about it is that <laughs> it's the sound that a penis makes go <laughs> <in a vagina. laughs> kind of no it totally i mean is. it's like a plunge but it's with like yeah like a no <laughs> no a clunge is a very specific noise <laughs> oh my god okay i needed that yeah that was good good i'm glad <laughs> that was our opening riff we'll Great. see if we end up keeping the vaginal references at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> Can't believe you said <laughs> clunge to me. You asked me to. I know. I'm glad I did. You I, asked for examples. I'm so glad I did. Like I'm happy that you're happy. <laughs> I'm something. Happy happy to have satisfied the urge. I don't know. I was going to say something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> happy to satisfy the urge there. Uh, let's go ahead and start the show officially. Yeah, let's do that. Welcome back, everyone. Hit Factory. Just Aaron and Carly on the mics today. Whoops. <laughs> it's not an accident. No, it's not. But I, 
I say whoops as like a sorry. You gotta, you, we cannot start a show being apologetic for doing a show. Oh my God. Have you like met a lady? I've met you before (laughs) and you're like, yeah, you're the most apologetic. Ladies are sorry about everything. That's true. And I don't like it. Yeah, uh, I hate it. It's the worst. It makes it hard to to do a podcast with a lady sometimes because it's like, my name's Aaron, and you're like, my name is. I apologize for everything. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I I say my name already. Like I'm sorry <laughs> every time. It's gonna be a great show. It's gonna be a great show, and yeah. we're gonna try not to be apologetic about it. In fact, we should be asking for your thanks, listeners. Gratitude. Gratitude. Give it to me because. This is an episode we're doing uh, by way of, by virtue of, a poll that we conducted on Twitter.com. Democracy in action. And I got to say, it was one of the best polls, one of the best races I've ever seen in one of these movie polls. Like, in the past, there's been like one front runner immediately, right? And we even try not to stack the deck. But but Twitter has its favorites. I wanted to QT shit so badly and I didn't. Because I didn't want to reveal a preference. Yeah. Well, because you were conducting the poll. I was retweeting and QTing things all over the place. Yeah. Uh, But mostly just encouraging people to vote. It was neck and neck and neck and neck for basically the entire 24-hour period. Yeah, it was wild. If I remember correctly, the four choices were today's film, As Good As It Gets, uh, Reservoir Dogs, and what was the fourth one? The Rapture. The Rapture. That's right. Michael Tolkien's The Rapture. Uh, and I got to say this as well. Things have changed. The The hierarchy of power in the Hit Factory universe has shifted, has, has changed it? markedly. Tell me more, well, please. Well, for the first time, I think, in Hit Factory history, the Bill Ryan bump was rendered... Null and void was defeated, vanquished. Even I don't. I wouldn't say that. No, he he kept the rapture in the running. I think more so than it otherwise would have been, which is a shame. It it did seem like it was trailing for a little bit, uh, and it was one that I was actually really excited to talk about, and and we yeah. will at some point, absolutely, totally. Uh, but usually when Bill Ryan endorses one of these movies, it wins handily. So shout out. To you, the listeners, you, the followers, who have grown in number <laughs> such that your preferences are making Bill just a, just another single vote in this democratic process. No, I don't want Bill just to be another single vote. I even asked him, I was like, why is no one listening to you? And he was like, <laughs> I don't know. No, they were listening, uh, but it, was, it wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough. It, he almost got it over the finish line. But alas, we had a victor decided at the 11th hour. I think it won by a fraction of a percentage, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. It was almost Reservoir Dogs, which much as I enjoy that movie, and I enjoy it less than I once did, uh, it would have been the most boring choice we could have gotten. It was uh, the one I wanted to do the least I, out of those four. I know. And, you know, as uh, irony... Uh, there was some irony there that uh, made it the front runner for a considerable length of time before this film eked out its victory. Really? People were hate voting it? People weren't hate voting for it. What I'm saying is that the universe hate voted in that direction. That the universe 
uh, bent towards chaos for a moment before finally leveling out into karmic justice uh, and settling on today's film, which is Johnny Toe's 1993 action spectacular, The Heroic Trio. People love the Hong Kong action cinema, and rightly so. I think that this, of the four films that were on the docket and potentials for today, is the one that is the zaniest. It's the one that is the most unorthodox, narratively, aesthetically, the most adventurous. I was very wowed by this movie. I knew I was going to be, but I was surprised even by just how many different places it went and how distinct it was i fucking love anita mui that's a start she's my hero yeah like i love her so much she fucking rocks everyone's like oh maggie chong oh michelle yao like they're great i love them Mm -hmm. i love both of them but anita is special and and i think especially because my first encounter with her was in Drunken Master 2. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't even... She, like, barely does martial arts in that movie. She has one really rewarding scene. She but does. Yes. But, like, like I said, she barely... Compared yeah. to what she can do. Absolutely. She barely... And I was so fucking taken by her in that film. I just, like, couldn't take my eyes off her whenever she was on screen. She made me, like, like gutturally laugh, like a trillion times in that movie fucking hilarious she's so fucking perfect she's just like charismatic as fuck and like beautiful and whatever so seeing her in this film i was just like absolutely thrilled and then like she like shows up as wonder woman not the dc wonder woman but this universe's wonder woman within the first you know like five to ten minutes of the film on fucking phone cables or whatever the fuck she's doing and i was just like oh my god you're perfect yeah i just want to look at you and watch you do stuff and thankfully johnny toe agrees because he he totally he just wants us to look at her he she's in close-up all the time shedding single tears behind her silver mask she's fucking brilliant she's really really good in this movie and you know if i have to qualify the reasons for why the other two of the heroic trio might have a little bit more purchase. It is obviously because of the cultural cachet with Western audiences that those two have accrued over the course of their career. Totally. Maggie, th- Maggie obviously like broke out of Hong Kong cinema, had Irma Vep in 1996. So she was, you know, kind of entrenched in this European art house cinema. Um, she was also, you know, kind of amused for a little while of Wong Kar Wai's and did In the Mood for Love, which 
broke out huge, you know, that that sort of that Hong Kong new wave cinema that's running parallel to what's going on in Heroic Trio. Uh, all of those things make her a big star. Michelle Yeoh, obviously, broke out Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, huge international success. Uh, and she just won an Oscar. So those two are getting a bunch of love on the timeline all the time. But I love how much you love Anita Mui because I think that she is remarkable in this movie. And despite that lack of like Western cultural purchase has such a broad and like fascinating career, albeit a brief one. One of the best reasons to talk about things you love openly, often, fervently is like you learn stuff if like... You know, you have conversations with people. And when I was like, you know, excitedly posting about Anita Mui, um, like a bunch of people started talking to me about her singing career, mm-hmm. which I didn't know existed until like a day ago. Yeah, I think we briefly referenced it on our Drunken Master 2 episode that she was a singer. But the actual just like level of fame that she had achieved within China as a canto pop star uh, is maybe even more so than like her movie career. Yeah. And like, I forgot whatever we said, so <laughs> that's fine. Um, but I was listening to some of her music and her voice is incredible. She is doing the thing with her voice that she does like with her, her body in movies, which is like, she has this sort of like carriage of it that, just like has energy but like is controlled and and like is at once like charismatic and also like honed practiced incredibly dynamic like I just I'm incredibly obsessed with her and it's really sad to me that she died so young and I am excited to learn more about her career and like spend more time with her stuff because I want more of her um, but yeah, I mean, there were like other people in this movie and they're all great, but like <laughs> this, this is Anita Mui's show as far as I'm concerned. It totally is. And it's like a starring vehicle for her. Like d- despite the fact that it is, you know, a titular trio made up of three of these like incredibly remarkable women in Hong Kong cinema, all three of them in their own rights, just like incredible martial artists through the roof the action in this movie and their skill like stuff. That's just like, I can't imagine any sort of proxy for what they're doing in Western cinema in Hollywood in general. Like obviously, you know, like golden age, Hollywood, you know, dancers, singers, the triple threat kind of situation. Uh, But in terms of just like the sheer physicality of what they're doing so consistently in this movie, like in the nineties, especially like no one was doing that. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. The prop work, it's like not just the acrobatics of what they're doing and like all of the athleticism in in their martial artistry, but also like working with props and working on like insane sets <laughs> that aren't just like a sound stage or whatever, but it's like, you know, a fucking warehouse with like 80,000 stairs in it or something <laughs> or like a vat of chemicals or some shit. The like sets in this are incredible by the way. Yeah, they're wild. I'm thinking specifically of 
the sort of derelict house that Anita Mui and Damien Lau uh, occupy and purchase at the beginning of the film. Uh, and also, of course, like the evil master's lair, the underground sewers. I don't think the sewers in China look like that for real. But if they do, what a treat. What magic goes on down there. Is it like worth trying to attempt what this story is about? I was going to ask you that. I don't think so. Because like it's a pretty basic premise, all things considered. Where like there's an evil master who controls Michelle Yao and orders her to steal babies because they are trying to make a demon king as the next leader of China. Anita Mui is a vigilante masked superhero called Wonder Woman. As we mentioned, no relation. I don't. I wonder if they even had any sort of like litigation issues in regards to this. I assume because of the language barrier that like, it didn't register. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, but she is the wife of a police investigator trying to figure out who's stealing the babies. And then along the way, you also get a hired gun character who's a little bit of a brash, kind of ditzy, gun-toting uh, badass, Maggie Chung's character, uh, who goes by Thief Catcher. And at first, they're all kind of working against one another and then it becomes something of an Avengers-style team-up where all three of them work together to vanquish the evil master. There's some other stuff going on here as well. And I think, like, I, I paid close attention to this movie. I watched it more than once. You watched it too. And I got to say, like, for all the magic happening here, like, the script is not its strongest point. No, and, like, what happens actually doesn't matter. No, not at all. <laughs> like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, it's inconsequential. Literally, like, it doesn't matter. And, like, I didn't even, like, care about what was going on. <laughs> like, I was just like, all right, yeah, we're doing this thing now. Um, which which is a big deal, I want to point out, because, like, uh, I mentioned this to you and preface the movie beforehand. That was like, I want you to be prepared for the fact that the subtitling may be a little bit wonky. Meaning might get lost in some of the translations. The script might be a little dodgy. We may not know what's going on for uh, uh, portions of this movie. Um, and that's not because of the version of the movie we have. That's just something that's sort of uh, indicative of this era of Hong Kong cinema, whether it's like wuxia stuff or, you know, other kind of like hard-boiled triad adjacent kind of movies, like the stuff that Johnny Toe was doing or even stuff like John Woo's movies uh, that he was producing in the early 90s, late 80s. But some stuff just gets kind of lost. And you are a person who does not like that normally. You're a person who needs to know what's going on. Yeah, I suck to watch movies with. <laughs> but when something is really capturing your attention, you do just go with it. When it's not, uh, it, it can be a challenge for sure. <laughs> uh, There's like a middle road where I'm like incredibly captivated so much so that I'm like really invested in understanding what's going on. This is what this was a different thing. I was just like, I don't give a shit about the story. I just want to watch these ladies do stuff and look at these cool sets and like, you know, look at their outfits. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's for. It's like incredible costuming, which we'll talk about more in a minute. It's hot ladies doing martial arts, yes. kicking ass. Uh, the and whole baby violence. Baby violence is another thing. I'm here for the baby <laughs> violence. Shout out to Johnny Toe. For just like going there in this movie. 
we we've talked about this with friends on shows before where like I, I think it was Kurt Schiller who's been on the show recently for our GoldenEye episode. Yes. If you haven't listened, listener, go check it out. It's a good episode. Great episode. Great episode of the show. Uh but on a, a, a former episode, I think it was the freeway episode, we were talking about uh the sort of the setting of stakes within a movie and how Hollywood cinema, studio movies, you know, even genre fair sometimes kind of teases you with this idea that for a little while, like you're not sure whether or not the movie within like the the world and universe of it is okay with killing certain characters, specifically children. And this movie dispenses with any pretenses like almost immediately within like the first like 30 or 40 minutes, uh, a baby has fallen from multiple stories up and been impaled by an, a, a rogue like nail and then the baby dies on the operating table <laughs> it's fucking like gushing blood everywhere yeah. like <laughs> it rules lots of babies die in this movie oh my god so many babies i wrote one note down i mean my notes are not great but <laughs> One one line of notes says, flying babies, exclamation point. And then <laughs> another note says, murdering babies brutally. Yes. And Maggie Chung, like without any sort of apprehension whatsoever, is like, well, there are some kind of evil babies hanging out here in the sewer. And I think that they have uh, matured past a point that we could probably fix them because they're already cannibals. They're already eating people. And brains and things so i'm just gonna blow them up with dynamite she literally says like we need to save them from their own suffering by killing them yeah and then they blow them up <laughs> and it rules it rules it's, it's <laughs> and they're like they're like kindergartners oh, like yeah they're like, like well and then like the first baby that dies too like is like a literal infant like it's not like a child who like gets impaled like you know kids die tragically in movies of a significantly different tenor than this movie but the fact that like so much infanticide happens and just like you know children of younger than five being killed in various ways in this movie is something that a Hollywood director would like never fucking touch even in like the most like hard boiled, like tough as fucking nails R rated action movie from like the eighties or nineties. Yeah. This movie isn't like concerned with Western ideals of like, you know, morality. Um, and I think that's why it's like easier for me to watch a movie like this and just sort of like go along with it is because it's not it's not based in like traditionally western like narrative tropes or even like linear storytelling style and so you're just like automatically like in a different headspace mm -hmm. when you're watching it and you're like yeah those kids gotta fucking go <laughs> like sorry they're eating bones like what else are you going to do? Murder those babies. Yeah. And frankly, like, you know, I don't want to spend 20 minutes talking about kids being killed. But like when the the first baby gets the nail in his head and he's like gushing blood everywhere and you're like, oh, fuck. Like that's intense. But it's like a faceless swaddled 
you know, like bag of meat. <laughs> the kids that get blown up at the end, like we see their faces and we see like... And we also see them pissing their pants. We see them pissing their pants. <laughs> we see them like looking around and like making noises and they're like you know they're like fully developed children <laughs> yes and then maggie just fucking throws like 80 sticks of dynamite in them <laughs> and like we literally see like bones flying yeah and but i think that you're right like i, I also don't want to spend 20 minutes talking about children i sound like dying. i'm reveling in like <laughs> i mean we are kind of like murder but it's not something that like you know in the moment you're like oh yes like dead babies <laughs> right. but after the fact like you kind of admire it and it's exactly what you're talking about which i think like distinguishes this film for me you know may, maybe in the canon of of like hong kong cinema of the era there's a lot of great movies from this era and they all operate on a similar kind of like vibes first approach like you know, this is the same year, mind you, as Sweetheart's uh, Green Snake. Also a great Maggie Chung performance in that one. Very similar kind of movie that is, you know, has its plot and has like an interesting kind of like thematic quality to it that is about sort of like a modern revolution and, and sexual and gender politics that are more progressive and defying like an old order of sort of Chinese conservatism. But there's a lot of it that like doesn't make sense and gets lost in translation. And you just kind of have to go with it. And you're okay with going with it because it's like brilliant to look at. It's beautiful. And everything is just moving a mile a minute, just in your face constantly, just wowing you and dazzling you. And I think that that lack of concern with the sensibilities for a Western audience in this movie specifically make it so much fun where you're right. Like you are able to just kind of like turn off the analytical part of your brain and watch something that is just dazzling you on every other front. Like there are so many creative moments in the action in this film. Like I could not have even conceived of them until I saw them. And the way that they're shot is so cool. Like there's just like, even just like, you know, things that are, are easily dismissed or just kind of like one-off bits, like the part when Maggie Chung is shooting shotgun blasts at Anthony Wong at the end, who who plays the character Cow, who's hideous and terrifying and has like a chainmail basket that he uses to lob heads off. I hate him. He's very terrifying. But there's just like a couple of like quick intercuts when Maggie's firing shotgun shells where he's knocking them away with his metal bracelets and they're impacting into the walls and we see the impact of the shotgun blast like blow open the walls and then he bends the barrel of the shotgun and, and it blasts into the floor and stuff like that is just like because it's done practically and because it's done with this kind of like flair and verve you just like i don't know you revel in it and you're like this is this is so much more interesting than an alternative version of this that's done with big special effects are done purely for like a, a kind of like empty spectacle of it. Yeah. There's like a tangible surrealism to this film, which makes the action incredibly potent, but also like really arresting. Like you're just kind of like blown away by everything you're seeing and not even like necessarily like fully understanding like, the action but that's that's how you know like it's directed and choreographed really well because like I've certainly watched 
Western action films where like I was not invested in the fights and I was not invested in the action because there was no sort of sense of like, okay, where are these people oriented in the space and like who's hitting whom and what's happening. And I think, you know, what I, what I've seen from Hong Kong action cinema is like these directors and these like fight choreographers and often the actors themselves are really good at balancing a dynamism and a sort of like expressionist style to the action choreography while still also making you feel like immersed in what's happening um and not like completely disoriented what i was gonna say about you know like turning your brain off like i definitely did that with this film and just kind of like enjoyed the show but that's not to say that this movie doesn't have like interesting things to say or doesn't have some things on its mind. I think the thing that stood out the most to me and probably the most like vaguely intelligent thing I have to say about this film that isn't about like clothes is that I really liked the way that it complicated the idea of like womanhood with motherhood Mm -hmm. and the fact that like the heroic trio the titular heroic trio is three women like that's already like a thing right but that each of them have sort of a distinct relationship not only with one another but with society and also with children um and and with the idea of family mm-hmm. the movie is like sort of showing us all of the different multitudes of like you know what it means to be female and that it's not reducing them down to like oh it's ladies and babies are the ones being stolen so it's got to be ladies that save them like that's never even really a factor there are like moments when Anita Mui's character is kind of like you know extra invested in in what's happening because there's a child's life at stake but like not past the point of like not blowing up babies right when it needs to get when it needs to get done absolutely it kind of like removes that pretense around like the idea like oh a woman cares more deeply about a child than anyone else does like obviously like you know the the villains in this movie are underscored in terms of their villainy by just like how willing they are to nab up all the babies (laughs) like it's it's a perfect like evil guy plot like i'm gonna steal some babies from a hospital totally uh but yeah they they blow them the fuck up and maggie chung uses one as bait at one point and anita moy is like not above you know like throwing her little metal shurikens into the wall to like stick the baby into the wall so i can oh my god i love it it's so good and you're right it like it abandons that idea of like womanhood and maternity being inseparable to the point that a woman could not be objective in a situation revolving around the safety of a baby. Yeah. And that importantly, I think the most substantial like relationships in the film are the ones between the women, Mm -hmm. like the idea of sisterhood, um, like literally and figuratively. 
And uh, that's more interesting to me than like, oh, they have uteruses and they have, so they got to save the kids. It's like, I think this this movie is fun and exciting and beautiful and incredible to look at for all the reasons that we've we've said but I also think that um it's doing like some really interesting things with its female characters and also like you know when you think about the conversations that like the west has about like China and you know countries countries to the east of us that like we often uh, use this sort of like blanket idea of like oh well the west is here to save the ladies right like that's what we said for Iraq and Afghanistan and all the other places where it was a lie and I think like spend any time with like any media or any piece of art from um from any of these countries and it's like it becomes clear that the U.S. probably, like, treats women the worst, like, out of every uh, major nation. And I'm not here, like, stacking up, like, you know, levels of, like, anti-feminism in, uh, in various nations. I'm not smart enough or globally minded enough to speak on that. But, like, I think it would be really easy to be like, oh, yeah, like, movies coming out of like this, you know, corner of cinema, like are not going to have anything for me because like they don't care about women over there or whatever. And like this movie not only complicates that, but I think is like one of like a trillion examples of like why that's patently false. They also have a practical effect in it where a motorcycle is spinning and used as a projectile. So there's that going on here too. Yeah. Uh, but to, no, and to, they have like, you know, stars like whipping around and like bullets being sliced in half. <laughs> like the stuff that they're doing it's is like cool. fucking bananas. No, but to your point, though, it's like we have talked about this very recently on the show, right? Where there's this facade, there's this like faux prestige around modern blockbuster cinema in Hollywood as being the torchbearers of a certain type of progressive representation, not just in terms of like uh, ethnicity or, or skin color or like gender identity, but also just like a value system around those people being incorporated. It's decidedly neoliberal all the time, right? And about success as it falls within like very particular parameters of a like capitalist industry and mindset. But it's undone as soon as you watch movies from around the world and from other periods in history. Like, you know, you, you go back to like pre-code Hollywood movies and see just like how like sexed up and racy those things are often before, you know, the Hayes Code. And even like when you go to 1993, like Hong Kong cinema, action cinema, which is decidedly, you know, on our side of the world, more masculine, more male driven. And this movie has like in its pinky finger more just like actual earned girl power than a hundred of those fucking scenes in like uh, Avengers Endgame where Evangeline Lilly and Gwyneth Paltrow and everyone get together to like fight a bad guy after having, you know, maybe five minutes of total screen time across 30 movies. Yeah, that all sucks. It all sucks and it's not earned. But my point is simply that like, here's a movie, you know, now 30 years old that is investing 
a lot of time into understanding its female characters in a way that often foregoes or completely disregards our traditional ideas of like what femininity is, what it's built around, how it's structured. Like there are love interests in this movie, but they are completely disregarded for most of it. There's a very clear power dynamic shift between Anita Mui and Damien Lau, like when she becomes Wonder Woman and she's clearly the more competent of the two. Not only that, but he is wholly supportive of her by the end of the movie when he discovers her identity. Yep. And like basically is okay with conceding the position of like the justice seeker in the family to her without any sort of like look what we're doing like look how cool this is kind of shit going on uh and then of course there's like the doctor and michelle Yao yeah he's like a huge idiot he's a huge idiot uh he's just you know sucking up toxins and he's you know sacrificing himself it's kind of romantic i guess in a certain way uh but the love story there is not dwelled on in any way whatsoever and even for like most of the runtime of the movie we think that michelle yellow like may very well murder him on behalf of the evil master yeah 100 percent. the last thing i'll say on on this topic is just that like movies like this just underscore for me the thing that i already know that we that we already know which is just that like we settle for so little in like our current landscape of film where it's like okay yeah like have those like two female characters like give them a a spinoff series sure like i don't know (laughs) like whatever it is let let charlize and michelle rodriguez direct their own fight scene in fast 10 totally like okay it's just like and you know like i'm excited and very happy for uh all all of the people like Michelle Yeoh who have been acting for decades, like finally getting recognition from the West, or I should say from like institutions of power in the West, um, cultural power. But it's like patronizing to like think that that's like it, right? Like it's just like, no, they've been doing this stuff for a long time. And also like, I don't know, like probably should have, won many many awards years ago um but now that i've like talked about all the ways that like this movie's like super feminist and like all that stuff i want to like talk about some clothes (laughs) i was hoping so let's let's talk about some fucking clothes now that we've talked about all of the ways in which this is uh not a shitty girl power movie uh it's a good girl power movie Let's talk about the fits. I'm going to be the basic bitch that talks for 20 minutes about the fucking no, outfits. I, I want you to because like good costume work, a, a good costume designer in a film is a lost fucking art. And I think about this constantly when watching like modern mainstream stuff, often studio stuff where it's like there's no care and attention put into costuming or like design. There's no like real character-driven choices, nothing flashy, nothing looks cool. Like, I have been watching recently uh, more, like, classic Hollywood cinema. Specifically, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm uh, focusing on stuff from, like, the 1930s right now. And I'm looking at, like, you know, just, like, every single thing that a Catherine Hepburn or a Cary Grant or someone wears in one of these movies. Even, like, a Peter Lorre, right? <laughs> and it's just, like, this is so rich and so vivid. Like, it's its own character within 
the context of the story, like the clothing choices and the designs and the fits and the fashion here. Ingrid Bergman's clothes in Notorious are its own character. Exceptional. Exceptional stuff. And we've forgotten how to do it or we've done what we've done with a lot of other stuff, which is like made it, uh, you know, lazier uh, and and claim that it's a, a pragmatic choice, right? That it's it offers more like verisimilitude in, in the production. Uh, the same way we say that with like the murky, like dark, poorly lit shit that digital yields these days where it's like no that's just a a choice to you know make it uh more authentic or to render it with a certain level of like realism now it's it's fucking digital and no one wants to pay for the lights like that sorry that that's the the simple answer to it is that we're shooting on newer cameras that need more light to show more light and we don't pay for it anyway same thing with costume designing everything is turned into some sort of like pragmatic approach to the cost like i think of i'm gonna just keep calling it out because it is our modern like superhero cinema the way that this is you know kind of a superhero origin story or a team-up feature like when was the last time there was ever any sort of interesting noteworthy like costume choice for any character in a marvel movie you can see some of them but all of them are just like you know skin tight like jumpsuits that are usually, you know, gray or black or some variation of that have like a metallic sheen or a scaly kind of like texture to it, but nothing interesting. And this movie has so much going on in the costuming department and the choices and like the fabrics that they're using. You you were calling these out. And once you called it out to me, I I could not not notice it. Yeah, I think like the most interesting costume choice in a Marvel movie has been like Sam Rockwell's hand tanner in like <laughs> Iron Man 3 or whatever movie right. that is. I think it's 2, but you're right. Or yeah. Iron Man 2. And yeah, like Mickey Rourke's tanner or whatever it is. Yeah. Um Okay, so like just bear with me for I, a second. We don't need to bear with you. You can be as excited as you want to be for this because it is exciting stuff. I'm just like going to get really specific about fabrics and uh, silhouettes. Please do. <laughs> so I had a hard time tracking down who the costume designer was for this movie. There's the art direction uh, credited to Bruce Yukon, and he's like, he comes up as like having a hand in the costumes. Mm-hmm. And then there's another um person, another woman's name who's also credited as like an assistant for the costume designing um, named Helen Lee, I believe. Um, So I'm not entirely sure like who, who all did it, but whoever they are, kudos. The thing that I'll just say as like an overarching statement about the costumes in this movie is that um, they are at once like incredibly feminine, like very much like designed for a female body in motion and also like incredibly non-traditional um, and just like really creative and really interesting and like really like textured literally and figuratively um and I'm thinking I'm thinking specifically of like one outfit that shows up in a lot of photos of Michelle Yeoh's character where she is in this like red 
like bodysuit mm-hmm. ostensibly. Um, it looks like one of these like long leotards that I used to wear for ballet, but it's like hot red. Yeah. Um, and she, she looks has, good in it too. Yeah, she looks amazing in it, and she has like a black bra sticking out of it, and it's like a sweetheart neckline, and it's like this thing that like is on the one hand like really sexy but also it's made of like cotton twill so it's like it's also like like practical like she Mm -hmm. can like like it it can get busted up and shit um and then so she's like wearing it as like a house outfit (laughs) in their apartment right just like lounging around with the doctor like hanging out um and then she wears it like when she's part of the heroic trio and she's fighting and she has this incredible like cross-hatched burgundy like all shades of red cloak that she wears over it that's like it's like part cloak part robe and it just like looks fucking amazing and it moves like really well and like it manages to feel like weighty and substantial and also like incredibly like uh like dynamic and ethereal and like just like it's just like a beautiful costume and it's like two pieces yeah it's this like bodysuit and then this like incredibly well-made gorgeous cloak Mm -hmm. and she fights in it and like it's not like she wears something else when she's doing the stunts like she's in that outfit Um, that's like one example of like, you see the ways that they're sort of like playing with the idea of like a cat suit, right. For like a superhero or like a superhero lady. Right. But like also giving it this air of like, she's kind of like regal in this, in this thing. And also like, it feels very like, I don't know. There's something kind of like medieval about it. It's just fucking cool. It's like a really, really beautiful piece of costume. And t- for the work. record, like Toe and, and company also are doing great work accentuating all of this costuming because there's a fan blowing yes. in every scene in the movie. Literally. So like everything that drapes all these things with like long tails or like the trenches and these coats and shawls that they all have on like are constantly just like flapping in the wind. So it just emphasizes this very like heightened comic book style kind of quality to all of the all the costuming and importantly they know how to manage these articles of clothing and this this like fabric that's like blowing all around them like they use it as a part of their choreography so there's a scene before the three of them sort of all converge narratively like together for the first time with that awesome like slow-mo shot of the two of them on horseback and maggie on the bike no it's much earlier than that oh where they first meet for the first time when they first encounter each other got it anita moe's character is in a green satin mini dress and then she is in a and like an emerald satin trench coat okay (laughs) you were you were losing your mind at this well here's the thing okay recreating the silhouette of a trench coat so that it is recognizably a trench coat and like holding the sil that that 
stru- very structured silhouette. It's not a fucking blanket. It's not a, you know, scarf. It's a coat. Yeah. It is a coat with buttons and <laughs> fucking collars and like a huge lapel. Like there's a lot of shit going on. Anyways, you don't make trench coats out of satin. Like that's just not a fabric you use for trench coats because like it's then you just look like you're wearing a blanket. Right. It's not structured enough. But this emerald green trench coat <laughs> somehow is made of satin and is a trench coat, like has structure and has this sort of regalness to it. Um, and Anita Moy is just like casually wearing it like to the hospital. Just yeah. like, oh, what's up, honey? Like hanging out with some babies. <laughs> okay. So that's that. That's atypical trench coat number one. Atypical trench coat number two is Michelle Yeoh's trench coat, which is made from what I can only describe as a silk chiffon. It is also recognizably a trench coat. It's just not a thing you would make a coat out of. And it's gorgeous. Like I was obsessed with it. And she's in this like, she's also wearing like monochromatic, like she's in maroon other stuff. Okay. So that's that. The third atypical (laughs) trench coat is Maggie Chung in a black trench coat and her trench coat is knit. Yeah. It is made of sweater material. Yes. It has structure. It has shoulders. It moves. But it's, it's a, it's, it's like scarf material. It's like, and no one else cares about this, but like. They do. We do (laughs) care about it. And when you see it, it is remarkable like i said it, it's eye-catching and it's beautiful and it looks great on them because they're all great looking but your commentary on it is important because yeah this shit like doesn't shouldn't work and i'm also just like someone took the time to like decide that they were gonna do that the thing that i think is most remarkable about about the designs is that the fabrics in a lot of cases are like kind of defying gravity in order to maintain their structure. And I made this remark online and I'll say it here, which is that like, it's not unlike the characters themselves who often defy gravity in this film. Well, it's not unlike the whole theme of the story insofar as there is like a guiding thematic purpose to the movie. Yes. Let's talk about that. And I I am done talking about the the clothes. (laughs) I mean, it's what we've already kind of talked about, which is that like the clothes are an imperative part of what the movie is doing, taking things that are inherently definitively feminine and flipping them on their head a little bit, making it a, a movie that like both kicks ass, but also embraces the womanhood of its characters. And I think that that is like, to your point, the thing that's remarkable about most of the movie is that it's doing that throughout, that it is making these characters who are like badass, super hot babes uh, who are powerful and have a certain intellect and have this like whole depth of like meaning and understanding underneath them that's solely revealed over the course of what is a like, you know, pretty like kitschy campy movie sometimes um i won't say campy i don't like the term campy very much but i there's there's a sort of aesthetic to this there's a style to it there's a humor to it that even while it's doing that is still just really generous in terms of what it's giving us uh messaging wise as well 
I also like that the movie's not afraid to make Maggie Chung's character kind of a ditz as well. She's a full-on ditz. She's a full-on ditz, but she's like... She's, she's like kind of vapid. She's kind of vapid. She's often like, you know, the, the comedic humor uh, and, and the one who's like the most brash and sort of like flippant of the three of them. Uh, but yeah, she's kind of dumb sometimes or at least played up that way. Uh, but also like kicks ass like the when she's introduced her her introductory scene is one of my favorites in the movie uh where she is she literally like rides a barrel into a chemical factory like slim pickens riding a fucking nuke and like puts a stick of dynamite in it and blows it up and rides it into this hostage situation and just starts gunning people down it fucking rocks there's a lot of moments like this throughout the movie she's in like fishnet tights knee pads hot pants <laughs> a corset yep and a leather jacket she looks really good she does she looks really good in this movie and then she also has like barbarella hair yes <laughs> like, which is awesome the whole time and like we didn't even talk about it yet but you know we've, we've talked about irma vep on on the show before uh with our friend brennan streisnig and we have mentioned that, you know, Maggie would go on to do that movie a handful of years later. But there's a wonderful scene in that movie where Jean-Pierre Liaud's character, the the director, Rene Vidal, is first meeting with Maggie Chung, playing herself in the movie or a variation of herself, and is just like fixedly gazing upon the scene in this movie where they're in the, the derelict house fighting. And Anita Mui, like is using her like b blades her knives to cut bullets in half and shit and he's just like watching it so attentively and watching maggie's movements and watching anita's movements and he kind of pauses it and, and <laughs> looks at maggie and says this is why this is the reason this is the reason this is the reason uh and i get it i get what he means when i watch this movie that it's like you watch it and it's like how could you not just like instantly fall in love with all three of these women in this movie and be like no this is this is cinema carly voice movies right movies <laughs> like that's what i feel when i see this movie it's just it's so much fun and just like i mean even like the the fucking climax of this movie like you think you've seen it all already you've gotten babies blown up you've seen them like I already mentioned, using a fucking motorcycle as like a spinning projectile. You've seen bullets getting cut in half. You've seen heads getting lopped off. And then we get a like part stop motion, part animatronic, gory, gooey, melty skeleton. It's like it's like the Terminator meets like Return of the Living Dead kind of shit at the end. And it lasts for like... Like six minutes. It's, it lasts a long time. Like, you you were kind of losing your mind at this because you like. And the sound design <laughs> oh, is so like, gross. it sounds like knuckles cracking and also like soup. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> it's kind of squishy. It's, it's kind so of a squishy like, sound design. And like, you know, the practical effects work again, just like astounding, remarkable, super fun. And then the skeleton creature that was once the evil master wraps itself around Michelle Yeoh. And then she like fucking acts with it on, like fights with it on for the next like six minutes. Yes. It's just, it's bananas. It's the kind of thing that like, again, you like you're, you're 
convinced up until it does it that it doesn't have the balls to do it. And then it just fucking does it. And you're like, oh, this is this is insane in the best way possible. Like I could not imagine this being better. Yeah, like this. it's not like I was anticipating that happening. It's not like I was sitting there being like, oh, the skeleton's going to like attach itself to her body now. It happens and you're like, oh God, okay. <laughs> and so much of the movie is that. It's just sort of like, as we mentioned, it's it's a great vibes movie. There is some cool stuff going on under the surface of it. But ultimately it's like, 87 minutes where you can just give yourself over to it and it's a fucking blast from start to finish it is incredible martial arts work it's got like i said enough style for 20 of these types of movies the the forms that these women are making with their bodies in in space like in the scenery i mean they're gorgeous like it's not just incredible action. It's not just incredible choreography. Like the shapes they're making with their bodies are like beautiful to behold. And I don't know like if any of them have formal dance training, but like as a dancer, I'm always like picking up on when people have like dance-ness in their body. <laughs> and like all of them carry themselves like dancers um, even when they're fighting and it makes them a joy to watch on top of like the fighting feeling like visceral and like it feels like they know what they're doing because they do because they do everyone feels like they know what they're doing in this movie yeah the men like are there to just like be side pieces and like say yes and be like oh yeah you got it babe and then like the demons are there to be demons. And then it's like these three ladies just being like, oh, yeah, like we're badass and like we actually get it more than everyone else. So like we're just going to handle this shit. Right. And the babies are there to get blowed up. Yeah. We're going to kill some kids too. <laughs> collateral damage. Yeah. It's just it, it's nice to watch a movie where you know that everyone in front of and behind the camera is in such command that like you can trust it to just do what it's going to do and know that it's going to be rewarding while you watch it um the last thing i guess we can talk about is that there is a sequel to this movie came out the same year later on it's called executioners uh and features our our three leading ladies it's co-directed by johnny toe and the producer of this movie ching su tong who is a, a frequent collaborator with sui hark this is one of his kind of first ventures out of that partnership to try something new um, but the two of them co-direct uh, Executioners. Haven't seen it. Uh, friend of the show, Jesse Hawkins, said, don't bother with it. I don't know. I still kind of, like, I am excited to see it. I heard it's, it is apparently like a post-apocalyptic movie. So set in a kind of like war-torn or demon-infested earth, mm. which intrigues me. I like that idea for a premise. Um, but I haven't seen it yet. Maybe we'll do it for the show sometime. Most things feel demon infested these days. <laughs> do we really need more of it? Maybe if it's in the sure hands of Anita Moy, Maggie Chung, Michelle Yeoh, and John I Tell. will literally watch Anita Moy doing anything. You heard it here. Uh, so listeners, followers of the show, friends, family, 
send Carly your Anita Mui recommendations musically, cinematically. I don't know. Maybe she's got, you know, a clothing line or, you know, or developed some sort of video game in the the early 90s. Bro, I went down like a 30 minute rabbit hole of just looking up like outfits of hers. I saw you posting today. You were (laughs) she's she's got incredible fit. She's got a wonderful style. Oh, my God. It's like, yeah, she she rocks. Well, there you have it, folks. I do I do feel like I have to apologize for this episode. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. No apologies necessary. We talked about clothes. We talked about heroic trio. We talked about it all. We got to pretty much everything we wanted to cover today. We rocked this. Yeah. This was a good episode of our show. You're welcome, listener. <laughs> I will say it then. Remember at the beginning I said give thanks? I'll ask you again. Give thanks to Hit Factory Pod for talking about the heroic trio today uh, and follow along with us at hit factory pod. You can subscribe to the show at patreon.com slash hit factory pod. If you're not already, you should be tell your friends. We've got great episodes there and forthcoming for the Patreon feed specifically. Also, you can join uh, the discord. If you become a patron of the show, we're, we're chatting it up in there all the time. Discord in a way. Sewing discord. Uh, <laughs> That was pretty good, wasn't it? It was. Uh, shout out to our, our overlords, Linda, Jesse K., Jared Murray. And we will catch you all the next time. See ya. Oh, no.